So Dr. Peter Woodward is Professor of Politics at the University of Reading and Program Director of their MA in Strategic Studies. He's a leading expert in politics and international relations in Africa with special reference to Sudan and the Horn of Africa. He's been visiting professor at the University of Natal in Durban and at the American University of Cairo. He is regularly consulted by the British FCO, U.S. State Department, and also speaks frequently on the BBC World Service on Horn of Africa issues. He has authored over 20 chapters and books, numerous articles, and five books. Most recently, he has published in December 2012, Crisis in the Horn of Africa, and I've become intimately familiar with the 2006 U.S. foreign policy in the Horn of Africa due to my dissertation this year. Um, here today to speak on new wars in the Horn of Africa is Dr. Woodward. Thank you very much. <coughs> now, first an apology. Uh, I have a bit of a chest, so if the volume goes down, um, do raise a hand at the back and remind me to speak up again. Um, also, I should have said most of that introduction should be in the past tense. Um, I like to think I'm retired, but uh, <laughs> trouble is retirement isn't always allowed to um, take over for me. Too many of these things come back from time to time. Um, I should say a little bit about the background of this uh, presentation and indeed of the, uh, of the book. Um, it was part of a program on liberal approaches to war, a liberal way of war, which was run by Alan Cromarty at Reading, uh, the large grant from the Leverhulme uh, Trust uh, and produced a variety of uh, studies, um, a very eclectic uh, bundle, and um, so this was part of it. Uh, my bit really is concerned with the approach of liberal states to the conflicts of the Horn of Africa, um, particularly since the end of the Cold War, um, where we've seen a number of new developments in the, in the discipline of politics international relations, a number of which draw on uh, events of, in that part of Africa. So I guess you've already discussed new wars quite a lot, and have a pretty clear idea of what you think new wars are about. They're very rarely clear events. Um, as you know, they involve lots of irregular forces, and militias, things of that uh, ilk. Um, they tend to have a heavy impact on civilian communities, uh, they can involve themselves in ethnic cleansing. Um, they tend to lack clear outcomes, uh, victories tend to struggle on from year to year, decade to decade. Very often they morph from one form into another as, uh, as time uh, goes on. Um, they've given rise to, well, Mary Calder started using the term new wars about what, 15 years ago. Um, they're not actually new, new. I mean, there are plenty of wars of this kind around hitherto, but we've been so dominated by the Cold War that we tended to uh, forget about new wars until they emerged as the major form of warfare around in so much of the world uh, <coughs> since the end of the, uh, the Cold War. Um, they're complex. They nearly always have a variety of local aspects. Uh, they have national dimensions. They have dimensions of international character which affect not only the wider international community, but in particular the states immediately surrounding them. So you get the growth of regionalism, uh, which can be a highly negative as well as sometimes a positive um, experience. So new wars, um, there are lots of them around the Horn of Africa, but as I mentioned, um, many of them were not really so new uh, after all. Um, 
I knew, I've been going there for 50 years and they were there when I first started and probably they'll be there after I'm long gone. Um, but, uh, but there we are. Um, so what about this region? Why is it a region? In what sense is it a region? Um, very loosely, uh, it's around, uh, centered around um, Ethiopia, uh, as you can see from your, your maps and its relations with the neighboring states around it. Uh, its own internal pro political problems and the political problems in which it's become involved in neighbouring states and their internal problems and their involvement in Ethiopia, uh, generally on a reciprocal basis, often on a rather negative um, reciprocal basis. In 2009, Africa Confidential said of this part of Africa, the most dangerous corner of Africa is its northeast horn, where instability reigns and terrorism thrives on the antagonisms of its governments. Um, and that just about embraces all the themes that I want to uh, talk about this afternoon. Um, and it is because they do have complex interconnections um, that they will have regionalised so many of their problems um, over the last uh, 50 years. Well, you can go back to the 19th century too, longer than that. The kinds of issues that it's raised have given rise to a quite a lot of sub-disciplinary development within politics and international relations. Uh, here in Oxford, one of the earliest ones to take off was refugee studies. Uh, and refugee studies up at Queen Elizabeth House, I think it is now, um, largely began from connections with Africa, including a, lot, a strong um, Horn of Africa dimension, particularly in the late Ahmed Garadawi um, and his, uh, his work here. Um, Famine studies, too, had a big boost from, uh, if that's the right word for famine studies, a big growth uh, as a result of uh, the famines in uh, the, the Eastern Sahel, um, Ethiopia and Sudan, in the um, early 1980s. Um, and uh, Alex Laval and others became at the centre of a lot of uh, studies relating to, uh, to famine. Um, that developed its own literature. Of course, we've long had a, a literature on conflict, um, and uh, the horn generally pops up in one or more of the pieces about uh, conflict in Africa, or indeed often third world conflict more broadly. Um, then, of course, we had optimistically conflict resolution. That became a theme in lots of books on conflict resolution, and again, it popped up in various shapes or forms, one or other, of the conflicts of the Horn of Africa. And more recently, we seem to be popping into the world of post-conflict um, studies. So post-conflict studies are taking off. And let us hope that there are many more post-conflict <coughs> studies because there are post-conflict situations. It would be nice to think so. Um, anyway, that's also been a, a, a growing area. Um, and I was at the University of Greenwich a, a year or two ago, and I saw a notice up for a conference on piracy studies. And I thought, aha, splendid, a new field, piracy <laughs> studies. Um, very appropriate it was Greenwich, because it used to be the old Naval College. So uh, just, just the place to have a, a gathering on, uh, on conflict studies. Um, now, the LSE, of course, summed all this up. They said something just simply called the Crisis States Research Centre. Well, you don't want much more than that. It's all in there, isn't it? Crisis States Research Centre, um, whatever that... Uh, Means it certainly encompasses parts of the uh, Horn because one of its major um, figures, uh, man of Oxford, David Keane, um, of course, cut his teeth on uh, on the conflict and uh, 
sufferings of the famines of the 1980s in uh, Western Sudan and Southern Sudan. So um, we can see all kinds of areas where academics have come together and look at things that are all too well illustrated from the Horn of Africa, as well as being incorporated into other case studies from around the world. Now, what I'm particularly interested in today is the way in which um, the West, and I mean essentially the West, we talk about the international community, but essentially it's the West I'm talking about, loosely understood, um, has responded to in, uh, in what I like to see as the, the liberal ways available to it in trying to tackle the problems of the, of the horn. And it's in looking at those varying uh, approaches and involvements that I want to, uh, to draw you um, and uh, to hear your comments. Um, now, of course, the Cold War uh, impacted very significantly on the Horn of Africa. Um, we always think of that nice, stable situation of Europe with the Iron Curtain across it and uh, the sort of predictability. Um, but the, uh, the, uh, the Cold War in the Horn of Africa um, was much more uh, complex. Um, Right, turn up the volume. <coughs> keep, rem keep reminding me if it slips again. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the Cold War uh, impacted uh, very significantly. Um, some of you may be able to provide other examples of this, but at uh, different times, um, the Soviet Union and the United States were allied with all of the following. Uh, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia and Somalia. They changed sides regularly through the, uh, through the Cold War. And generally not because the major powers sought to change sides, because what they were concerned about was trying to stabilise their positions in relation to the Red Sea and the Gulf, um, either to defend their interests or to seek to undermine their interests in the case of the growth of the Soviet Navy in that area, um, but because domestic politics basically um, brought them in and chucked them out uh, as times uh, changed. There was Egypt after Nasser was very much with the uh, Soviet Union, uh, Sadat told the Soviets to go, and they did. Uh, in Sudan, we saw the went from the Americans to the Russians, and then back to the Americans um, in the 19, by the late 1980s. Um, and uh, Ethiopia was a similar experience, first American, uh, and then Soviet uh, involvement. Uh, and of course, Somalia did likewise. It uh, was involved with first the Soviet Union, uh, and then later with the United States until the collapse of the Somali state. And all this imploded, of course, at the end of the Cold War um, in about 1990, 1991. And we see the dominoes as the rulers of the region fall, particularly Sierra Barry in Somalia, and Mengistu in Ethiopia. Um, it wasn't accidental. Uh, it all fitted into the way in which the region had been uh, involved in international politics and had tried to resolve its own internal domestic issues largely in relation to what those allies could supply or not supply. And that included, of course, uh, supporting various conflicts that were taking place um, within the region in those days. Um, the outcome of which was the, um, the general reduction in interest in the area after the end of the Cold War, when there was no longer a Soviet threat, uh, and in consequence, um, the interests of the West were not so obvious as they had been uh, when there'd been the threat to the, uh, the naval channels of the Red Sea. Um, so you know, all, all this has to be set in a sense partly within the context of the aftermath of the Cold War. Uh, it wasn't a, a nice, clear, 
tabula rosa that was being um, shaped, or not shaped as the case may be, uh, in the Horn of Africa after the end of the Cold War. Rather, it was what was left after the end of the Cold War uh, across the, uh, the region, including, amongst other things, and quite unusually in Africa, one completely new state, Eritrea, uh, which hadn't been there before and which uh, got its independence well, effectively from the time Mengistu went down, and then I think officially in about 1993, if I remember uh, rightly. So these then um, left us with all kinds of uh, problems, famine, war, etc., ongoing. Um, and what kind of response, if any, should there be from the, the victorious uh, West in this uh, context? Um, and we've seen responses down the years under a variety of headings, um, and it's these headings I briefly want to, uh, to run through um, now. Um, the first one, perhaps the most obvious one, because it happened so obviously, is the use of military force. Um, and uh, it began, it kicked off really in Somalia in uh, 1993, and with the response to what was essentially a humanitarian crisis, uh, although there have been um, conspiracy theorists who tried to worsen it, I think in fact it was a, a humanitarian crisis. And it was thought that the intervention of the UN, led by the US, would be a, a way of resolving this. The liberation of Kuwait had already gone quite easily uh, with, with this great potential military force that could be used for good. This is an easy number. And that was certainly the view in the American military when they advised um, George Bush Sr. Uh, that it would be very doable, was their view. Um, and so um, off they went, leading the way, and of the 35,000 roughly deployed by the UN overall in Somalia, quite a number, um, 27,000 of them are American. So a large American presence. Um, all very well recorded. The cameras that were set up on the beach to uh, film back to prime time American television, the landings taking place of the American uh, <coughs> troops um, off the... Uh, off the ships, and they entered into um, into it with, as if there was no problem at all. But um, next door in uh, Kenya, there was a rather savvy American ambassador, a very experienced journalist by the name of uh, Smith Hempston, and um, he said, "Think once, think twice, think three times before you embrace the Somali. Um, I the Somali black something or other. If you come back, but the, the line I particularly liked was." If you like Beirut, you'll love Mogadishu. <laughs> um, and of course, that's what they soon learned, that uh, Mogadishu was another Beirut um, for all kinds of very local um, reasons. And as we know, um, it led on to Black Hawk Down, um, Admiral Howe thinking that it would just crush these small militias that seemed to pop up all over the place, which of course you couldn't. Uh, and in the end, um, Clinton, having taken over this mess, um, and been told it was going to be quite easy and out quite soon, um, got an experienced uh, diplomat, Bob Oakley, simply to go in and negotiate with the warlords and uh, get the American troops out. After which, of course, every other UN force group was pulled out um, pretty quickly as well. So, first um, military intervention, not to be followed in that shape or form, um, possibly ever, but certainly not for a long while. And that, of course, as Clinton was to admit, was one of the reasons why um, at Rwanda, the following year, the genocide in Rwanda, uh, there was so little support for significant UN action to prevent that genocide from taking place. 
He went back to Africa at one point in his presidency and apologised for the, uh, the way in which there had been inaction in the Rwanda genocide. Um, essentially as a result of the Somali experience that America was still trying to come to terms with. So, did that mean the end of, uh, the, end of the military? I've lost the page. Where have I gone? Oh yes, there we are. Um, so not quite the end of the, of the military. Um, the first glimmerings began to emerge of terrorism and the uh, terror in the Horn of Africa, um, and uh, especially with the uh, attacks on the American embassies in 1998 in um, Tanzania and in Kenya, and they very nearly got one in Uganda as well, but um, I think intelligence was a bit better on that one. They managed to stop, uh, stop them getting to the, uh, the uh, Entebbe um, embassy in uh, Uganda. Um, but the realization that there was something called um, terrorism uh, was, was out there. Um, indeed, uh, in um, 2000 and, no, sorry, 1993, four, four, um, the US had put Sudan on the list of terrorist reporting countries um, because at that time Osama bin Laden um, had uh, turned up there and was involving himself in the, in the uh, developments both there and uh, across the region <coughs> as far as he could. Military response to this, well, in the end it came down um, to missile strikes in 1998. As a coincidence, the missile strikes on um, bin Laden by then in Afghanistan that narrowly missed him, and a missile strike on a pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, north of Sudan, uh, which was alleged to be connected to, um, to something nastier, um, but that had never been proven, um, generally regarded as a, uh, a tactical error. Uh, the locals in, in Sudan said, well, yes, it's all right to do this kind of thing, but you ought to aim for the president's palace, not for, the, uh, not for a pharmaceutical factory. There was no love for the president, um, as there still isn't. Uh, get your targets right. Um, but anyway, that was, that was the missiles, so they were kind of a, um, we've got to do something quick, we're not going to put the troops in, so bang, bang, bang. Um, and uh, that was pretty well the end of that in terms of that kind of usage of, uh, of missiles um, on that basis. But it also brought us um, Camp Lemonnier, um, AFRICOM, and all the American military presence in uh, Djibouti uh, that's grown up as the central area um, for involvement in, um, in the Horn of Africa, and really much of Northeast Africa, which uh, continues. But the importance of which uh, is still open to discussion. We'll be discussing it at lunch, and I'm sure there are people here from the military who have far more knowledge than I do of just what goes on out of um, Camp Le Monnier um, and, and all that. Um, perhaps the most notable uh, aspect of it was the decision of the US uh, government to give military support for the first time since the Somalian um, crisis uh, to the Ethiopian uh, invasion of uh, Somalia in 2006 to overthrow the um, Islamic Courts Union which was then ruling in, uh, in Mogadishu. So that was a, uh, a deployment then that uh, involved American air support. Um, of course, what goes on in terms of covert operations, I'm no position to know, but just overtly this was the first time that American um, bombs had been let loose uh, again, um, well certainly <coughs> since 1998, um, and the first time back in, uh, in Somalia. Um, it's been followed, as you know, by a continuing military support to the uh, new government in uh, Mogadishu, um, including the 
use of drones and all the issues that uh, grow out of that, um, the ethical questions, the legal questions, the tactical questions, is it counterproductive, is it productive? Well, you can come back and discuss that if you like. I, know, I have no particular expertise um, on that area, but clearly it is an ongoing issue um, now, and will have to continue to be so as the support for the government in Mogadishu um, survives. Just as importantly, of course, has been American military support to local allies, in particular training programs um, for neighboring uh, countries, uh, Ethiopia, um, Uganda, Kenya, um, others have been on in support of receipt of American um, training programs. Um, and of course, American intelligence also has quite close working relationships with the intelligence systems uh, in place in those uh, national governments um, across, the, uh, across the region. Um, and then most recently, uh, we've had, and I guess there's somebody in the audience who's been involved in this, um, on the work on the pirates, in which the navies have become uh, involved. Um, and uh, this has involved not only the Americans, but the Europeans, and increasingly Asian navies as well. So we've got a splendid uh, array of um, navies taking part in these uh, activities. On the whole, with a degree of success, at least at sea, um, most of the Somali experts, of whom I'm not one, however, argue that uh, the war on piracy, if there is such a thing, um, can never be won purely at sea. And it will come back to issues of how ground developments come on in time in, uh, in Somalia. Um, and that, of course, we have yet to uh, really to start upon. The Mogadishu government hasn't got round to thinking about how to control its coastlines yet. That's uh, uh, a fair way off, simply um, trying to build its own area of support in relation to the continuing threats of al-Shabaab um, is quite uh, sufficient. Right, enough of things military. Um, there are a lot of other things that go on as well, um, forms of soft power uh, of one kind or another that have been uh, used by different outfits at, uh, at different times. Um, Again, one could say the, the US led the way in this, um, in that I mentioned in uh, 1983, putting the, um, 1993, sorry, putting uh, Sudan on the list of terrorist supporting states. Um, it at the same time brought in American sanctions um, against uh, Sudan. And these were followed up by uh, UN um, sanctions as well. Uh, UN sanctions came on after the attempted assassination of Mubarak. Egypt's president in Addis Ababa in uh, 1996, which very nearly killed him, certainly scared him, um, and uh, he, he got off. Um, luckily, I think his driver was killed amongst others in that uh, shootout. Um, and um, it had had uh, organisational support from uh, Sudan security forces. Um, it was carried out by Egyptians, but the, op and the operations would not have been possible without the uh, involvement of the Sudan uh, security uh, and the uh, embassy in, in Ababa. So as a result, they went on to the UN terror, um, sanctions list as well. So they had um, widespread sanctions from the West, which have gone on being uh, in place. Um, they were recently renewed, the American sanctions, I believe, um, and are a nuisance but really not that much more than a nuisance. Uh, they're a nuisance in that you can't use um, sort of international financial um, routes that you would normally have. Uh, you have to go in with bucket loads of dollars um, and uh, pay everything in cash, 
have no uh, connection to any, any kind of credit system, or because for any company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange to, to think of being involved in Sudan, would be to lose their placement on the Stock Exchange. So it has a big uh, uh, impact in, in that sense, very inconvenient. However, such has been the involvement of China and the Arab uh, neighbours, particularly the Gulf states, um, that Sudan's economy has not gone flat on its back as a result of the sanctions. Um, indeed, thanks to the Chinese investment in particular, and to a lesser extent the Arabs, um, until two or three years ago, uh, it was one of the fastest growing economies in Africa, uh, going along at, at um, 8 to 10 percent a year from 1999, when it became an oil exporter, most of the oil going to China, um, until uh, two or three years ago, and they've now run into problems about oil supplies, but that's another issue. Um, so um, sanctions have had um, a, uh, an impact, um, but they haven't been uh, decisive. Um, and given the attitude of and the significance of the Chinese and of Arab neighbours, um, there's no way they were going to be decisive in terms of um, significantly changing uh, regime um, <coughs> behaviour. Uh, Chinese did get a bit embarrassed for a moment at the time of the genocide Olympics, which happened to coincide with... Uh, the Darfur crisis, um, which their allies, the Sudan government, of course, were meeting out violence right, left and centre in, uh, in Darfur. Um, but the Chinese um, got over that one and nobody boycotted um, in the, uh, in the uh, Beijing um, Olympics. So um, important uh, sanctions, but not uh, decisive. Um, As I say, they continue to uh, build American uh, sanctions on there. The Sudan government was very hopeful that making peace in 2005 would lead to a lifting of sanctions, um, and they're getting rather fed up with the way in which Americans say, just do this, just do this, just do this, and the sanctions will be off, and they never are. There's always some reason why they, uh, they have reason to continue. Um, not least because the conflicts go on that are so um, appreciatedly understood um, particularly by lobbies in, uh, in and around Washington um, who are very keen to, and have been for a long time, to uh, raise the issues from uh, Sudan's conflicts in particular. Right, so sanctions have been a uh, part of the kit, um, but not a decisive um, part of the kit. Um, diplomatic efforts at political interventions towards conflict resolution. There's been an awful lot of this. Um, around the uh, around the area. Um, in fact, just about every country has got involved in this at, at one time or another, um, and uh, lots of folk like me get drawn into this kind of thing, at least in the early stages, to try and advise on what seems possible and doesn't seem possible. Um, the big one, I suppose, has been the Eritrean-Ethiopian conflict, um, which was 1998-2000, and is still by far unresolved. Um, there are still tensions there. There's some hope that in the aftermath of the Manesh Danawi days in Ethiopia, things may get a little easier. There certainly was a strong element of hostility between Isaias and uh, Manesh themselves, personally, which may, uh, may diminish and may help, but we have yet to see signs of that. Meantime, um, there were attempts to try to uh, end this war. One of the two largest conventional wars in Africa since World War II. And Ethiopia was involved in the other one as well, which was the Somali invasion of Ethiopia in 
happen, whether we'll see uh, a stable government in the southern central areas of Somalia, whether we'll see any further integration between um, Somalia and uh, Puntland and Somaliland is still a long way down the line. A bit more diplomacy. Well, South Sudan, that looked like a, a good one. Um, we made peace there in 2005, uh, the uh, com comprehensive peace agreement. Um, and um, that, that seemed quite uh, successful. Um, it seemed to return the possibilities of democracy to both uh, areas of one country, then Sudan and South Sudan, um, but also included the right of South Sudan to choose independence should uh, Sudan uh, fail to implement a secular constitution. Um, the government in Sudan did refuse to implement a secular constitution for all kinds of reasons. It stuck with its uh, choice of an Islamic state. Uh, South Sudan overwhelmingly voted in the referendum for separation at the beginning of 2011, which was duly delivered in July uh, of that, uh, that year. Generally seen then as an international success in terms of ending a war, uh, but at the same time it certainly wasn't the outcome the international community was hoping for. Uh, they had hoped that there'd be a move towards national liberal democracy. Talk to any of the diplomats involved, that was their, their Western diplomats, that was their aim to try and see the unity of Sudan retained um, and to see a power sharing develop in both South Sudan and uh, in Sudan um, more broadly, national governance and all that kind of thing. Uh, in the end, none of that uh, transpired. Uh, it was about two armed camps who had negotiated um, an outcome that they both thought they could live with uh, in 2005, and those two armed camps persist, but now as entirely separate camps and two separate states. Um, and a good deal of conflict existed in both, uh, and both are involved in the conflicts in their new neighbour. Um, so the, the usual pattern of uh, internal and uh, regional um, conflict involvement uh, continues uh, present. Now, where do we go next? Oh yes, we had uh, R2P. That popped up as a, a, a new thing, particularly after Blair and his speech in Canada. Uh, and we had the right to protect, which popped up in international debates and discussions. Was there going to be a, a use of the right to protect? It seemed, after all, that uh, it was very much uh, focused on 10 years after the Rwanda genocide. Um, and this seemed like a new version for sovereignty and international uh, involvement, the right to intervene in the international community to protect uh, citizens whose states were, governments were clearly um, damaging to their, uh, their interests. Well, Darfur looked perfect for this kind of thing um, in terms of the obvious need. It was the crisis of the moment uh, in 2004. Um, Many thousands being killed, hundreds of thousands being internally displaced and sent off as refugees into neighbouring countries, for the usual mix of local, national and regional politics, which I haven't got time to, to go into now. Um, but uh, that's, uh, that was Darfur. <coughs> was there going to be an R2? <coughs> Comment. It soon came apparent that there clearly weren't going to be any Western boots on the ground. So who might do it? Well, the AU, the New African Union, um, decided this would be a good one for them because they hadn't done a thing of this kind before. 
The old OAU did it once in the early 1980s in Chad, and it was a disaster. Um, gave up on that kind of thing after that. Um, but we had uh, the AU deciding to take the, uh, the lead with a lot, of course, of um, support <coughs> from the wider world. Um, and uh, it soon became clear that the African Union on its own was incapable of, of an operation of this kind. So we saw a, a new form, a hybrid UN-African uh, Union movement, um, a force uh, established for peacekeeping, um, UNAMID, UN African Mission in Darfur um, in the, I think about 2005, somewhere around there. Um, one of the largest uh, UN peacekeeping operations in the world. Um, and it's still there, but is it doing anything? Uh, it's got 26,000 uh, folk, mostly African troops, uh, on the ground. A few Chinese engineers with them now. The Chinese sent a few along uh, as engineers. Um, but if you've been following these things, you'll know that in this year, the last five months, there's particularly been a new round of fighting, 300,000 more internally displaced people. Um, clearly, the, uh, <coughs> the UN um, UNAMID um, can only peace keep when there's a keep peace to keep. A rather similar situation has been found by UNMISS, the UN mission in South Sudan, that now is. I noticed the, uh, the lady, Hilda Johnson, uh, who heads the UN mission in South Sudan, saying last week, uh, UNMISS can't be a policeman. Don't think we can do the policing for you. Quite what they do, do far from clear. Um, but they aren't. They say we, we can't be the policemen, uh, with all kinds of essentially localised ethnic conflicts uh, taking place in seven out of the present ten states of South Sudan, uh, as, we, uh, as we sit here. So R2P... Um, Understandable as an idea, as a record, not a great deal so far out of this, uh, this region of Africa. And then we had the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Uh, this was almost the Tweedledum and Tweedledee uh, of R2P. You can actually hold accountable the rulers who've been doing nasty things to their people, or indeed some of those people who've been doing the nasty things. Um, and it kicked off quite uh, understandably and perhaps rather obviously in terms of um, Propaganda with Joseph Kony, uh, the, uh, the madman of uh, northern Uganda, whom you will have heard. Um, and uh, you're probably aware, Kony uh, 2012 was uh, one of the big campaigns of the United States uh, last year. Well, it's 2013 now, and he's still out there. Um, and we're still arguing about who's helping and supporting him uh, along the way. Um, maybe if things do turn out to change in the eastern Congo, um, he'll find life uh, tougher there. He's always moved around from state to state in that uh, in that region, um, and uh, well, we, we ain't got him yet. So um, Joseph Coney was the, the first, and still on moves. And uh, haven't got any of the others to, who are clearly associated with uh, large-scale violence, particularly President Bashir of uh, Sudan, um, indicted over Darfur. Um, and a couple of others of his, uh, his government uh, similarly indicted. Um, it does limit their freedom of movement, um, but uh, it hasn't uh, got hold of them. Um, it may, of course, interestingly, have uh, more impact in relation to Kenya uh, and the Kenyan Prime Minister, President, President and Vice President, both of whom may have volunteered themselves um, for the court. But I suspect that there will be a lot of negotiating before they finish up in front of, a, uh, of the court. 
Indeed, if you were following the African Union um, 50th anniversary meetings in Addis last week, um, there was general hostility all round towards the ICC, which was seen essentially as targeting Africans. I they took one or two others on their list um, to make the thing look slightly more viable um, and uh, believable, rather, believable um, than it has been uh, so far. So, um, none of the characters the ICC has identified in relation to the broad Horn of Africa have yet uh, turned up in the, in the Hague. Uh, aid and development um, and all that. Well, um, there is a good deal of, of development, and development programs may often be very important and successful. They tend to be in areas that are not my specialism, and so I don't want to um, comment on them. Um, I certainly don't want to say they're all a waste of time. <coughs> some, are <coughs> some are better than others. Um, but in relation to overall development across the region, I still regard the impact of the presence of the Chinese in particular, uh, other Asian countries, uh, South Korea, Japan, um, India especially, um, and the Arab Gulf states have been everything, every bit as important as anything that DFID, USAID or anyone else um, is doing uh, in the region. Uh, and of course they have rather different kinds of agendas um, for the work that they're uh, uh, undertaking. But the bit of it, the bit of development that does particularly interest me, I suppose, because it's my discipline, is the good governance agenda um, and uh, and all that. And one has to say that on the whole, in relation to the uh, the good governance agenda, uh, it ain't having many successes. Um, we have a series of autocratic regimes that seem as autocratic as ever, for the most part. As I said earlier, the most um, the nearest thing to a, a competitive system that seems to function as such is Somaliland. Um, certainly Ethiopia, since the shock of the 2005 elections, has moved in a less democratic or rather more democratic direction. <coughs> the hopes for democracy engendered in the Sudan process uh, and peace of 2005 have not come about either in relation to Sudan or South Sudan. Uh, Eritrea goes on being the North Korea of Africa. Um, and um, on the whole, um, you know, these autocratic regimes uh, are surviving. If there is a, a glimmer, it is that the Kenyan elections of 2013 were a lot better than the last elections in Kenya. Um, one has to hope that that... Uh, but then Kenya has never been <coughs> quite as autocratic. I mean, sort of Kenyatta and all that, but in some ways uh, it was a slightly more um, open uh, system within strict constraints than some of its, uh, its neighbours. Now it's time to move towards a conclusion. Um, well, the first conclusions, no quick fixes. Um, I expect we all saw the Iraq program last Wednesday night. You'll probably be watching it this Wednesday night. And those first words uttered by Tony Blair, we needed really to remake the Middle East. Naivety, arrogance, combination of the two. We don't remake regions of the world like that um, by sending in the troops and thinking that somehow there'll be pop-up democracies and pop-up market economies that just emerge from the, from the woodwork. Um, life is much more complicated. In all these cases, I could give you the historical traces that run right through the region um, and are much more relevant to the understanding of where we are in northeast Africa now um, than anything that comes out of a textbook on good governance. Um, the world is simply a lot more complicated. 
um, and that a lot more historical in character. I'm sure at least some of you here will uh, attest. Um, we do have still these various forms of approach that can be used, um, and many of them are valuable in particular circumstances. But you have to judge the circumstances. You have to decide when it's right to pursue one line of approach or another with no blueprint, no quick fix in any of them. Um, and it's usually a combination of, uh, of various approaches from aid through diplomacy, through uh, responsibility uh, of various kinds, uh, as well as perhaps help in building uh, security within states. You've simply got to well, work out the mix. You've got to think also what you can do as opposed to what you'd like to do, um, because the idea that we have this tabula rosa at the end of the Cold War and you can do whatever you like on it, it wasn't true then and it's even less true now, particularly because of the role being played by China and Asia more generally, uh, as well as the continuing role of the Arab states. Uh, and you do have to try and work with them rather than against them in relation to any kind of hopes for uh, a more peaceful age for uh, for Northeast uh, Africa. That's about well, no, my, my end, I think. Oh, yes, one more thing. I always think before you embark on military intervention anywhere, uh, sit down and watch Carry On Up the Khyber. <laughs> <laughs> you probably think twice after that. <laughs>